At one time, the Venerable Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant the last 25 years of the Buddha's life, he inquired of the Blessed One, how should one conduct oneself to live happily in the renunciant life? And the Buddha gave him five points. I don't think that these apply only to monastics. I think they apply to all people who follow this teaching and this map of consciousness, this journey inward to discover the truth about what we are, who we are, what we're doing here. So the five points are be virtuous oneself and do not criticize others for lack of virtue. Observe oneself most of the time and do not be caught in observing others. Number three, do not fear lack of recognition. Number four, be able in the four meditative absorptions, the four jhanas we spoke about. And number five, realize perfect and complete liberation. That pretty much sums it up. (laughs) So this is our brief. This is a description of what we have to do. Practicing virtue and as Saira Upandita described in the Ten Armies of Mara, one way of looking at them in the Tenth Army, it's not to disparage others and extol oneself. That's an army of Mara, an army of death to the aspirant for liberation. On the other side of things, Venable Sariputta, who was the most distinguished disciple of the Buddha along with Venable Moggallana, they were like Jim and Mandy <laughs> to SIMT. You know, the two leaders of the congregation. So Venerable Sariputta declared 
in the Samyutta Nikaya, the collection of uh, connected discourses, number 21, second verse. There is nothing in the world with whose change there would arise in me sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. He wasn't kidding. He would never say such a thing if it weren't completely true. Well, this is where the project leads us. This is where the work takes us. To this kind of state where nothing in the world with whose change, like loss of a loved one, loss of our property, possessions, loss of our youth, loss of our health, loss of our life. I mean, just think of the worst possible thing that could happen to be a paraplegic, quadriplegic, dying of a terrible illness, being tortured. There is nothing in the world with whose change there would arise in me sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. There are so many supports that the Buddha teaches to help us get to this strength of mind, strength of heart. On the path in our work, as we do it, when the going gets rough, when the waves get very big, when the flood seems to be impending, or the drought. It's very difficult to keep one's composure, to not become critical or despairing, to not get agitated over conditions, over changes, over losses, and difficulties that we have to overcome. And we've all been in those situations in different ways. The supports that the Buddha offers, they definitely work. But how difficult it is to remember them when the alarm bells are going. The sound in the mind usually involves worry, fear, anger, distress, disappointment, desire, wanting things to be different wanting the pain to stop or the hardship to end, wanting other people to be nice, to appreciate us, to like us. And it goes on and on and on. Wanting to like ourselves, wanting to feel secure, wishing that fear didn't come back or would at least lessen, diminish does teach. It always teaches. Among the many lists that the Buddha gave, we've been through some of them, like being aware of the hindrances in the mind. This is really paramount. And the hindrances, again, the main description of the hindrances, you can divide them into threes and fives and tens, Greed, hatred, and delusion. 
or greed, desire for sensual pleasure, aversion, anger, hostility, negativity, sleepiness, exhaustion, boredom, restlessness, anxiety, worry, and doubt. Kind of giving up because of being uncertain, not confident, not trusting, non-trust, lack of trust, very powerful hindrance that can upset the mind regardless of what's going on. No matter how good things can be, doubt can undermine all that we're doing, all that we've done. But these four ways help to allay the power and distance us from these hindrances and disempower them if we really can persevere. And what would be the result of disempowering the hindrances? Well, if someone is free of sensual pleasure, is free of the desire, it's like a person who is freed from debt. There's nothing to want anymore. It goes against the grain of being distracted by beautiful sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touch sensations, and even thoughts. This desire mind that is easily distracting us. So a person who is no longer in debt, is content, is freed from that kind of worry and weight on the mind. And the second hindrance, anger, is like a poison. Hatred, anger, ill will. It's just like toxin in the mind. And a person who is freed from that is like somebody cured of an illness. You feel whole again, you feel well. And the third one, the sloth and torpor, this is when somebody is is overcome by sloth and torpor and suddenly the clouds disperse and the mind is clear again, it's like somebody that's been let out of jail. You've been in prison because the fog doesn't move. We cannot even access the breath. We don't even realize we're breathing. It can be that dim in the mind. We're just so tired. We can't deal with the present moment. But if we are let out of jail and the mind becomes clear, that's such a freedom, such a wonderful feeling to suddenly be able to see again and see clearly and see the way and follow the way. Follow it. Develop it. Learn from it. Grow in it. And then the restless, worried, anxious mind, we've all been subjected to the pressures of that. We feel the vulnerability, the insecurity. And it compresses us. It's described in the suttas as one who is a slave, one who is chained. 
we're not our own masters. We're definitely the slave to the relentless mental currents, the murmurings and chatterings, even when we're sitting in a room full of silent people. The mind can be chattering away and noisy as ever. And there we are, completely like a captive audience. Nowhere to go. No way to turn it off. But when we learn how to escape from that chattering mind, it's like somebody that's been set free from slavery, from bondage. This is the power that these, of course, I'm describing the most extreme cases. But I'm sure most of you have had bouts of terrible restlessness and anxiety, insecurity, fear, and felt enslaved by it, driven by it, even at night, unable to sleep. So the idea of becoming free, like taking off the chains from the hands and feet of a prisoner or a slave, somebody who's controlled by another. The last hindrance, doubt, the image that's used is like someone wandering in a desert, thirsty and lost in a desert, with no safe place, vulnerable to attackers, robbers, dacoits, bandits. I remember once, many years ago, this is back in the early 70s. I was in India and I happened to know a couple who were from the royal family in a village and they had a castle. In the old system there were lots of these little kingdoms and fiefdoms and many minor kings and princes in different states of India. So I was invited to come and visit them and naturally, I wanted to go, get to visit a castle. It was a pretty old, dusty, and abandoned structure. But it was definitely a castle. On the way there, the prince was driving a bullock cart with a bunch of potatoes. And his wife and me, we were in the back. <laughs> and the oxen were pulling this wagon. And we went in the middle of the night because it's so hot. This was in the summertime. It was so very hot that he thought we'd, it's best we go at night. Now this area where I was staying, where my teacher lived, is actually a very famous area for dacoits. And if a wicked person wanted to hire a murderer, they would go to that place. <laughs> so here we are driving along in a bullock cart on a track in the remote areas of southern Uttar Pradesh. Suddenly, in the dead of night, these horsemen come with rifles. I was nodding. I was asleep. Then I heard voices and I woke up. Me and the wife were huddling in the back and the prince is talking to them in the local language, which I understood. 
And he's telling them that all he had were potatoes. It was true. And they were demanding his wealth. Listen, all I have are potatoes. He didn't mention the women. (laughs) But we were in there cowering. I could see their rifles and I was scared. Very, very scared. It reminds me of talking about doubt, of being in a desert, like in a remote place in the middle of the night, when suddenly these strange horsemen appear with bandanas over their faces. You're under attack. And I thought we were going to be raped and carried away, and they would plunder the wagon and see there were really only potatoes. Somehow, because he was a prince, and then finally he pulled out his ace card. He said, I have a Westerner here. I got terrified when he said that. But they were so intimidated by that because it was something unknown to them. And he was a very educated man, certainly being from a royal family. And he spoke with much authority. So they just backed off and left. But I was really full of doubt, I thought. This is the end. I've had it. I was terrified. So to be in that kind of a situation, when you reach a safe place, you feel such relief. When those bandits drop their rifles, turn their horses around and disappear in the night, I almost cried with relief. I couldn't believe it that we were safe to continue. And I was very happy to reach the castle because I was safe. And so reaching a safe place, a place where you're not under attack, is like overcoming doubt. To have confidence and trust that all will be well, that you're okay. But in this context, the all will be well is finding safety in the heart. It's finding a safe place within us. The safety of the mind that knows the present moment and knows it with clarity and understands the truth of the way things are. This is a kind of practice, a kind of teaching that helps us to see the escape from suffering in all these ways. Where suddenly the hindrances are defeated and the mind is free, it's clear, it's not pressured, it's poised, it's confident, and it has the ability to do its work, to discover the truth in the way that it needs to. It has rid itself, even if temporarily, of the poisons, of debt, of drought, of illness, of slavery. It's truly free, even if temporarily. This is the effect of developing the jhana. The mind temporarily experiences the joy a prevailing serenity, a depth of mindfulness, an evenness of mindful, wise seeing that enables the mind to completely settle 
into itself and gain an integrity that maybe it has never known before. The hindrances are far away. As long as the jhana prevails, the hindrances do not dare to peep their heads up. And the mind is strong. It's like a prince. It has an ability to reign, to be restrained. And so it's safe. It's completely secluded, not only from sense pleasure, but from pain. It doesn't feel any pain in the body. And it doesn't feel any pain in the mind. And this state of mind, once it's developed and strengthened, gives us the ability to emerge from that seclusion enough then to be agile. That kind of a mind is very agile and fluid and can be pressed into working towards Nibbana. To realize wisdom through the depths of its stability. A mind that is concentrated and equanimous, like a mind that emerges from the equanimity of the jhanas, where mindfulness is perfected, can then see clearly, absolutely clearly, the insights that arise, that will bubble up. Instead of the hindrances, we have bojangas, not bojangles, bojangas. These are enlightenment factors. And the enlightenment factors are to be known, each one as it arises, and we are developing them already as soon as the hindrances have been overpowered. Already we've developed mindfulness to a very high degree. That's the first one, Bhojanga. And with that mindfulness and the wisdom that comes with it, the ability to see wisely and clearly, we have the talent, the gift, the skill to investigate the object, the breath, or the body, contemplate the body formation, feelings, mind objects, consciousness, and the dhammas of the mind, the Four Noble Truths, the five powers of the mind, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. We're able to contemplate these and see them arising within us, and then skillfully apply them. And then the mind that is so clear and so still and stable, well established in itself, there comes from the mind itself an energy. It's like a natural spring. You don't have to pump up that energy. You don't have to strive. But the natural luminosity of the mind gives us energy. It reflects its energy because we're able to see the mind directly, to know the mind directly. So the virya is another factor of enlightenment, this energy. And then from that energy comes incredible joy, this rapture. 
it's not of a worldly nature. It's the rapture, the bliss that comes from experiencing the pure mind. The purity of the mind gives us, endows us with this incredible joy. This is an extremely refined state of joy. Unlike anything that worldly activities or delights can offer. If one has experienced that, one will know. That's why we come here. Other people who haven't been to a retreat, they think you're at a spa. (laughs) Delighting in great comfort. But these comforts that come through the joy and the brilliance of the pure mind far excel anything that the world can possibly offer. And then there comes a point where that rapture is tiring. You can't keep it up. So the mind settles into a deep serenity and happiness. This is called the Bojanga of Pasadi. With the hindrances quiet. These factors of awakening, as they develop, they distance the hindrances more. It's like a seal across our minds. They're far less likely to even dare attack, to even approach in the face of these factors of enlightenment. With that kind of serenity, we march on to our natural heritage, our natural inheritance. When the Buddha came to visit and his son, Rahula, followed him, his wife said, give him his inheritance. And Rahula became a monk at a very young age, leaving his grandfather distraught because all the relatives were becoming monastic. (laughs) And he became an arahant, his little Rahula. That was his rightful inheritance. And we, as daughters and sons of the Buddha, have that same inheritance. We owe it to ourselves to develop this practice above anything in your life. This is our true inheritance. Not what the world has to offer, but what this has to offer, this Dhamma and teaching. So then comes the Bojanga of concentration practice. Concentration of the mind has already been developed when sati and dhammavichaya, vidya, piti and pasadi are there, there is already a deep level of concentration that we have developed. The mind is already very, very stable. Our faith is strong. Our trust is strong. And we're able to vanquish any attacker or insult, any unwholesome energy that comes into the mind. We have purified the mind to such an extent 
it has this level of perfected mindfulness and stability, samadhi. And within that upeka, equanimity is purified. The mind becomes ready to receive the wisdom of the path, the Four Noble Truths, knowing, seeing and understanding suffering, knowing its origin, realizing its cessation, and developing the path to its cessation, the Eightfold Noble Path. Equanimity is needed for these insights to arise, and this is where the vipassana comes in. This is where we develop the liberation, the release from the world. Then we experience freedom from the hindrances that is permanent. This is very significant to be able to realize that level of purity. It's important for us to see the mind that is full of hindrances and to see whether they're present or not. If they're there, what do we do? Remove them. And if they're there, we also see how they got there. And when we remove them, we try to prevent them from arising again. We described this a little bit yesterday in the practice of the four right efforts. With the enlightenment factors, we have to do the same thing look into the mind and see, are they there? If they're not there, we develop them. And if they're already there, we develop them further. We develop and perfect them as much as we can. And this process helps to keep the hindrances at bay, to defeat them, to put them in chains, so to speak telling Mara to be gone. It's like Subha told the goldsmith's son to go away. Being a daughter of the Buddha, he had no business there. Yes, to be able to fight the hindrances, sometimes we have to make tremendous sacrifices not to compromise. Renunciation is one of the paramis. Quite frequently, we have to give up a lot. We have to learn to give up and let go in ways that we never thought we could to develop these factors of awakening. I'm not telling you this from a book. I'm telling you this from my own life. When I became a nun, I really wanted freedom from the suffering of the mind, of the heart, of the world. I knew that this path was very precious and I wanted to complete it. I wanted to develop it to its ultimate end. And that's why I became a nun, to practice and to strive and to try and to apply myself. And the very first thing I discovered was when I asked for full ordination, that was the first thing I asked for, and I was told, not possible. 
discovered the monks. I didn't get it. What do you mean? Sayadaw said, not possible. Not possible for women. So I said, okay, well, well, what's the next best thing? What can I get? So he was able to give me the ten precepts, which means not handling money, giving up your wealth, not indulging in any form of entertainment, not wearing adornments, using jewelry, fancy clothes. Well, as a nun, I mean, you could wear fancy robes. But it sort of defeats the purpose. And there's no hairdo at all. (laughs) Just shave it off. But what I learned very quickly was I had to shave my heart. And that was much harder. Because... I never thought that I had been given second best, but for my whole first 20 years of monastic life, I kept knocking on the door of, I want to be fully ordained. Why can't I? And at every turn I was always told, not possible, not possible. It didn't stop me, but it certainly was a letting go. I had to let that go in favor of having a training and having proximity to a wonderful teacher. Teacher that really told me in no uncertain terms that he would only give me the precepts on condition that I took them for life. There was an American woman there who had just taken three months ordination. I said, how come I can't do it for three months? And he said very plainly, you've had enough samsara. You've had enough of the world. Well, it didn't seem fair, but I so trusted him, I agreed. And all through my monastic life, I've come up against these kinds of obstacles in many different forms, and having to let go again and again and again. Now, in my old age, running a project and being in a position of having to keep this project on its feet, and sometimes not feeling physically strong enough, the only thing I can fall back on is the Dhamma. I can't fall back on other people. People come and go. Nuns come and go. Even the monastery might come and go. I I realized this year, actually, that even that I may have to let go. Because there is no guarantee. That's really not why I became a nun. I became a nun to experience the death of the world. So that I could touch the deathless. Not to have gained in worldly ways. Even though I thought this was such a noble thing to find ways that other women could have the opportunity to get full ordination as I didn't for so many years. It seemed such a noble thing. 
But in worldly terms, again, it's so easy for the hindrances to grab the mind, here's a cause, and then you're wanting again. Instead of wanting the freedom and going for the ultimate goal, one can get trapped in wanting something in the world to succeed. But it's not up to me. It all depends on the right causes and conditions. And karmically, I have no idea. Not to know, to be uncertain, to be unsure, and to trust only the path, not the world. That is so far the hardest thing to let go. Especially knowing how much these conditions and situations exist for men. And seeing a lot of women wanting these conditions and situations, and there not being enough opportunity for them. It's, for me, a big kilesa, because it takes me right back to my own journey, my own frustrations, facing situations of being ostracized, marginalized, lack of support, so many things. And just wanting that benefit for others, it's kind of like what mothers must feel for their kids. You want to protect your children. You want them to have the opportunities that you didn't have. You want them to have better meals and better schooling, good jobs, and and the right partner. And then you want grandchildren. And then you're back in samsara. And it's all about the cycle of this realm. Even though it's in the name of love. This is a worldly kind of love, full of attachment, and it's full of hindrances. It's like a debt, an enslavement, a prison, a desert, a bond, a bondage, an illness, all over again. And then the mind can become poisoned with that. It can become exhausted by it. So I notice when I'm feeling physically tired, if I can raise up my spirits by remembering patient endurance, which is the incinerator of all defilements, just to be patient. And I remember a line from a famous teacher, Soke Ansasaki. He was not a monk. He was married and had two children. And he was a Japanese Zen teacher who came to the United States in the 1930s. He established the first Zen Sangha in New York. And Randy told me this story. When Sokai was asked what it was like to transplant the Dharma to the West, he replied that it was like holding the lotus to the rock. Holding the lotus to the rock. In other words, holding the roots of this beautiful lotus flower of the Dhamma against a rock until the rock crumbled and fell apart so that it could provide 
the soil for the lotus to grow in. And when I heard that, I understood that what I'm doing is trying to hold the lotus to the rock. That's why it feels so impossible and so hard. Because it, it's just, just possible. But it takes an inordinate, magnificent, superhuman patience to do that. And I have to develop that to be able to accomplish this and to see that in holding the lotus to the rock, I develop the conditions for my own awakening to happen. And if that can happen, then all will be well. And the rest is up to karma. If all of us can do this in our lives, then we will have fulfilled the path to freedom in the truest way. We will be safe. We will have crossed the desert. We will have reached a place of complete safety from the world. And the lotus will be growing in us. So, to counteract the fear that I sometimes feel in doing this, I contemplate what is unconditional love. Unconditional love is the total absence of fear. And what is it that we fear the most? What is it that we fear the most? Unconditional love. Because it means letting go completely. To love in order to love. Not for anything in return. So I offer you that for tonight.